RPC Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. I don't want to speculate too much for academic historians. We don't like to say this caused that unless we're absolutely certain. But I think we've reached some conclusions that the Smyrna catastrophe contributed to the success of Lloyd's today. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner in the law firm RPC, and in each episode I'm joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we have Adrian Leonard, and we're going to discuss the Smyrna catastrophe of 1693 and its impact on the development of Lloyd's of London. Since 1995, Adrian has been a self-employed writer and consultant to the insurance industry under the name Strategic Insurance Communications. In 2014, he was awarded a PhD in economic history from Cambridge University, where for the next six years, he was Associate Director at the Centre for Financial History. He's written widely on insurance topics both historical and current, and in 2015, he edited a book entitled Marine Insurance Origins and Institutions, 1300 to 1850, which I have to say is excellent. And just last year, he published a book called London Marine Insurance, 1438 to 1824, which included a section on the Smyrna catastrophe of 1693, which is what we're going to discuss today. So Adrian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Peter. It's a great pleasure to be here with you. Uh, so t- talk us through your route um, into insurance and, and, uh, and also give us a, a quick summary of your, your current role and, and your consultancy work. I began as a PR man, really, which is sort of what I am now. Uh, that was back in Canada right after college. Uh, that, there I moved into journalism, but all the while working on the side for corporate clients on their strategic communications needs, which I like to say ran from Amlin to Zurich Re. Uh, in the interim, I went to get a PhD as a midlife crisis move. Then about 10 years ago, I came back to the insurance action. Today, I advise a range of clients on their public relations, marketing, and other strategic communications needs. Brilliant. And uh, we're here to discuss the the, the gloriously disastrous story of the the Smyrna catastrophe, uh, and in particular, how it impacted the development of Lloyd's of London. Um, but I suppose I should really start by saying, uh, am I pronouncing Smyrna correctly? I think you are. Good, good. That is a relief. Um, anyway, the catastrophe is named after uh, the city of Smyrna, which is uh, now known as Izmir, um, on the western coast of modern-day Turkey. Um, but the catastrophe itself actually relates to events that took place several hundred miles away in the Atlantic Ocean, just a few miles off the southwestern tip of Portugal, um, and those events took place on the 27th of June, 1693. So please talk us through the events of that day, Adrian. 1680s, Britain's trade is in the ascendancies. 1690s, it's slumping a bit. There's also a war going on with France. There's almost always a war going on with France at this time in English history. The Smyrna convoy was a combined group of vessels primarily English and Dutch vessels. The English and Dutch were allies, and in 1693 assembled all these vessels, roughly just, I thought it's 260 vessels total, it's not entirely clear, um, assembled 
to sail to Smyrna. The fleet, uh, therefore, was heavily laden with English trade goods going out and with the anticipation of bringing back the rich trade items of the East. It is a protected convoy, by which I mean because there's a war going on, the Royal Navy, under the command of Sir George Rook, has sent warships to sail alongside the convoy and protect it from any potential attack. The actual execution of the convoying left something to be desired, to say the least. The, <laughs> the uh, naval protection wasn't there when the French bore down on this grandly laden convoy. The success of the French attack was quite dramatic. More than 90 vessels and their cargoes were lost or captured. Uh, according to one estimate, the value of those goods was 1.8 million pounds, which don't forget in 1693 is an astonishingly large sum. Uh, the Dutch bore the brunt of the losses in the attack, and Baltic merchants, those who trade to the north rather than the south, uh, the preponderance of the direct losses. The Levant Company, the English, and its members lost five of the nine ships that they'd chartered at common expense for the convoy. Total tonnage they lost was about 1,750 tons. The Levant Company later declared that in total it had lost goods worth about £600,000. So all in all, it gets the name Catastrophe, deservedly. So, so what we have is this amazing scene of 260 ships coming down you know, the coast, aiming to go through the, the Straits of Gibraltar, and basically just being annihilated by the French. My understanding is that the French... So, so the, the Dutch and the English lost, as you say, 90 or so ships, and the French lost not one ship. They, they, they lost literally nothing. And uh, yes, yeah, so, so I think that un, under any circumstances, that categorizes as a catastrophe. Um, it was a, an absolute disaster. So but, but bearing in mind that this all took place off the coast of Portugal, um, so it's, it's confusingly known in the, in the history books as the Battle of Lagos, despite the fact that it's not Lagos, Nigeria, it's Lagos Bay on the on the southern coast of, of Portugal. Um, but if it's the Battle of Lagos, why do we call it the, the Smyrna catastrophe? Because of the impact it had on trade, it was the Smyrna trade that was so badly devastated. Um, people knew about the Smyrna convoy, great trading convoys were celebrated, people would have gone down to Dockside to watch the vessels depart, and not just the merchant community, but others as well, would have talked about the success of the Smyrna convoy. So naturally, the loss event is known as the Smyrna catastrophe. And in terms of insurance, Adrian, um, we're talking 1693, uh, now, so could you could you introduce us to the marine insurance market uh, of 1693 in London? Because my understanding is most of the ships were insured in, in London. So to, to talk us through the market in 1693. This is just a few years after the first ever mention of Lloyd's of London. 
which is often seen as the beginning of insurance in the city. But unfortunately, that's wrong. Insurance began to be underwritten in the city several hundred years earlier than that in the 1420s at the very latest. Uh, it was primarily underwritten between merchants at that point, initially between Italian merchants, but English merchants as England developed quickly saw the benefits of the insurance instrument and the possibility for profit in underwriting insurance as well. Primarily, they insured each other amongst themselves in the community of merchants. The practice of insurance had begun in Italy and had followed trade ascendancy from Italy sort of up and around the west coast of Europe to the Dutch Republic, which was a leader in insurance in the middle of the 17th century. We begin to see in the historical record examples of the English underwriters who are becoming more established insuring Dutch vessels in the mid and later 17th century. We do see some investment going the other direction as well, so it's by no ways unidirectional flow of business. And of course, insurance is all about spreading risk. So spreading risk between insurance markets is a sensible thing to do. It is safe to say that about this time, the British, English, London, if you want, practice of insurance began to gain some dominance. The trading of insurance, however, at this time was an almost entirely private affair. Lloyd's is simply a place where private insurance is traded and continues to be simply a venue for the training of insurance until the fourth quarter of the 18th century, effectively. Um, at that time, it begins to set up institutional structures that make it a market instead of just a coffee shop. And, and presumably before that, the, the Lloyd's coffee shop was just was just one of several places where insurance was traded. And after that as well, insurance was traded in many locations uh, throughout the period. The Royal Exchange was an important place to trade insurance since its founding in the 16th century. There was an interesting fragment of an underwriter's ledger found and subsequently lost that showed in the late 17th century, the locations where insurance policies had been subscribed, they were all the familiar streets where today we still have London insurance institutions from Midsing Lane to Bishopsgate and Church Street and so forth. It's been an insurance hub for a very long time. So in 1693, obviously that was just after uh, the, the Lloyd's Coffee House had started, kind of, you know, give or take a few years. So it's easy to think, because of Lloyd's became what Lloyd's became, it's easy for people to think, therefore, you know, the, the loss caused by the Smyrna catastrophe was, was a loss that was that was suffered by Lloyd's. But, but that, you know, what we're saying is that that's, that's not, it was, it, was a, it was a loss suffered by the, the London market as a whole, of which some of the insurers traded from the Lloyd's Coffee House, in effect. Is, is that what we're saying? That's absolutely right. There may have been insurers trading at Lloyd's Coffee House in this early days who suffered losses in the Smyrna catastrophe. There may not. 
uh, as, as a yardstick in 1720, there was an enormous set of government hearings, a modern-day inquiry, held into the functioning of the London insurance market. Uh, it did, in fact, refer to losses several years earlier uh, by underwriters in the city, which was a reference to the Smyrna catastrophe. But in no part of the hundreds of pages of testimony that are given in this set of hearings is the name Lloyd's mentioned. Oh, is that right? It was just not important at this point. Wow. Okay. So a lot of Lloyd's history is us looking back and knowing how the story ended rather than living it as, as it happened. I think that's right. The, um, the, the Smyrna catastrophe, I mean, do we know actually how much was insured in London? Because as we're saying, Amsterdam was a big insurance centre as well at the time. So do we know how much was insured in London as against Amsterdam or, or do we not have those level of details? We don't, unfortunately, have that level of detail. It was a lot, a large share. It was natural to insure vessels that were departing from the south of England in the south of England, although there were certainly Dutch and Baltic insurers' exposures as well. But given the private nature of the insurance market, it's impossible to say what was insured by whom and where. And the fact that there are 260 ships all traveling together in a convoy, was that a common risk management strategy at the time, or was that brought in just for war? To what extent was that something which was enforced by by insurers? I mean, how did that work, and what relevance did that have for insurance? Uh, it's very much a wartime practice to travel in convoy. There were debates at the time as to whether or not it was wise to give your enemies one big target or hundreds of little targets. But there were commercial factors as well. The first person to arrive at a market is the one who gets the best price. It was very common for vessels to break from convoy and run to market as they approached, or maybe a week away, to try and get ahead. However, insurance policies at the time, and there are quite a few that survive, very often include the words, to return 5% or 10% of premium if run with convoy. It ranged the insurance, you'd pay the premium, and if at the end you had arrived in your convoy, you'd have a premium rebate to enjoy. So convoy was very important, and indeed insurers were great lobbyists for the state to provide greater convoy protection of trade. It was another political issue of the day. And we're talking, uh, you've already mentioned the figures, potentially 1.8 million. So enormous losses for what was at the time a fairly young insurance market in London. So, so what were the immediate consequences for the London insurers who had money at risk um, as a result of the Smyrna catastrophe? Because we are dealing with individual underwriters, their personal wealth, is the solvency available to them to meet their losses. Some were able to do so extremely easily. Others were unable to do so at all. It's worth noting that the size of the market at this time was perhaps 140, 160 regular underwriters. Some of them would have had a primary business elsewhere as a Levant trader, for example. Others, it's clear to me from my research, were 
quite focused on underwriting and probably maintained it as their primary occupation, although it's unlikely that they had no other connection to the trades. And you're saying that some didn't have the money available to pay their losses. I mean, what happened to them? Did they just go insolvent or, or, or what happened? Well, here comes an interesting part of the story. We'll take a very brief tour through uh, English bankruptcy legislation, if you like. Absolutely. Uh, I thought you'd like that. <laughs> there was in place from the 15th century, I believe, a set of laws which set out methods which could be adopted for debtors and their creditors to negotiate, to reach an agreement as seems sensible. Unfortunately, for reasons I don't understand, in Tudor times, a new law was brought in which was much more draconian. It basically forced creditors into insolvency if they couldn't meet their debts. Well, this regime was in place at the time of the Smyrna catastrophe. The underwriters who couldn't pay their debts therefore faced ruin. Some faced double ruin if you could be ruined twice. If you were an merchant insurer who had also been a Levant trader, you were likely in very dire straits. Mm. There was, however, in this case, the prospect of a lifeline. A bill was presented to Parliament which had the cumbersome title of... No, I've, I've got it here. So, it's it, it, as you say, they come up with some great titles in, in these days. So the, the the bill to enable... I never know whether it's diverse or di diverse. Diverse? Uh, a, a bill to enable diverse merchants insurers that have sustained great losses by the present war with France, the better to satisfy their several creditors. What a fantastic name that is. And I understand that one of these diverse merchant insurers at the time was, was one Daniel Defoe, or Daniel Foe as he was at the time, but and who would go on to write Robinson Crusoe and, and Mold Flanders. So tell us a little bit more about his involvement and how, in many ways, he was sort of symbolic of a, a lot of the merchant insurers in, in uh, underwriting the Smyrna catastrophe. Interesting. I'm, I'm not sure how typical he was. He was a dabbler. Uh, Daniel Foe was an occasional merchant. He owned a vessel called the Desire, which possibly sums up his personality. He had previously been to prison for debts. He was again bankrupt by his losses in insurance. This time he chose to change his name and his profession as well when he got out of the merchant business and became a writer instead of an underwriter. He may have written uh, a broadsheet pamphlet that lobbied in favor of the bill to aid the diverse merchant insurers that set out the structure of the proposed remedy. And when I first came across this proposal, I was surprised at how very similar it is to a scheme of arrangement, which introduced, I think, in the 1980s to help insurance companies meet a portion of their losses and, and avoid insolvency so that the maximum is spread to the most with the agreement of all creditors. The bill proposed such a scheme for these hapless merchants, insurers who'd suffered from the Smyrna catastrophe. The creditors would meet, launch their claims, affected policies would be recorded, 
and they'd work together to agree a percentage based on ability to pay that the merchant would deliver to the policyholders who had lost out uh, as a result of this mini catastrophe. The goal, the intent of, of the system was multifold. One was that these useful merchants would not fail. Second was that everyone would get something. Third was that one disgruntled policyholder couldn't derail an agreement with everybody else. And finally, it was a reputational issue. The legislators in favor of the bill really wanted to see that the reputation of London as an insurance center wasn't damaged by the incident. So the bill named all these kind of various um, underwriters who were in financial difficulties, um, including Daniel Daniel Foe, Daniel Defoe, um, but but also a, a man by the name of Henry Mansfield, which uh, I, I feel very proud of. I have no idea whether he's an ancestor of mine, um, but I will definitely be doing some genealogical digging to see if he is, because uh, it's always nice to have a failed underwriter in the family. That that will keep me happy. Um, but the bill is clearly a bill. It is not an act. So so what happened to the bill? Did it become an act? Did it get on the statute books and, and was it enforced? The answer sadly is no. The bill failed to pass the House of Lords. It had three readings in the House of Commons. The Levant Company was highly political and the events of the loss were highly political. The Prime Minister had been required to sack his Lord of the Admiralty over this event. And so no doubt it was politics that came to play and ultimately chilled off this bill. And what were the long-term consequences for of, yeah, of the failure of the bill? If the bill didn't rescue these underwriters, presumably they went bust. And, and But how did that affect the, the, the London insurance market as a whole? Do we know or did it just sort of carry on regardless? I mean, obviously, we've already talked about the fact that you know, Lloyd becomes a major player later on in the in the 18th century. But so it, it sounds as though the Smyrna catastrophe didn't have a terminal effect on, on the development of the insurance market. But what effects did it have, do you think? It certainly didn't have a terminal effect. It had, though, a lasting and variable impact. There was concern and a set of hearings in 1720. I alluded to them before. What was at issue was the formation of joint stock companies, as they were then called. These are quoted companies, basically, companies that issue share capital. It was very popular at the time of the Smyrna catastrophe in the interceding period to sell shares to people in joint stock companies. And there was lots of shenanigans going on. Several entrepreneurs saw value in launching joint stock marine insurance companies. And several have been launched and were beginning to carry on business under various names. Uh, in 1720, the hearings would listen to the advantages and disadvantages of joint stock companies as a tool for marine insurance. The nation recognized that marine insurance was important, was a valuable tool for, for the nation. What ultimately came out of those hearings was the formation or the, the royal chartering of two joint stock companies the Royal Exchange Assurance and the London Assurance, which both continue to exist today within much larger joint stock companies that we'll be familiar with. And this had multiple impacts. Yes, it allowed joint stock companies to trade, but because only two companies were allowed, 
And these two companies in no way had either the risk appetite nor the resources or capital or any of the other assets required to take over the entire risk sharing of the London market. Individual underwriting, which was the only type that was left permitted, was allowed to continue. And it flourished. That's why Lloyd flourished with its strange structure, copied nowhere else in the world. It had only two competitors in the marine insurance market up until 1824. So that's a fairly profound impact, I think. If the Smyrna catastrophe hadn't happened, are you saying that actually the way in which the, 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 the joint stock bubbles, as they were called at the time, might have been dealt with in a different way? Because obviously we have the, the 1720 Act that brings in these two joint stock companies that are the only two companies that can do marine insurance. Um, if the smaller catastrophe hadn't happened, do you think it, history might have panned out slightly differently thereafter? It may be the case that it would have been even more difficult to argue that there was need for joint stock companies. The proponents of the joint stocks were able to point to the bankruptcies of the hapless chaps like Daniel Defoe and say, look, we need something better than a, these private insurers. So the theory was the joint stock company would have greater capitalization than individual private underwriters and therefore would give greater security for marine insurance as a whole. A grand theory it was, not necessarily remotely near the truth. <laughs> Both companies very nearly failed very shortly afterwards as they suffered the loss of the Jamaica convoy in 1721, I believe. A uh, bit of a blow for them shortly after their formation. And the irony is, as you were saying, that if these two companies were created in order to you know, transfer the whole of the marine business from private insurer onto joint stock insurer, it had the exact opposite effect in the end because they pulled out of marine insurance. The private underwriters at Lloyd's came to the fore. Lloyd's was created and the rest is history to coin a podcast title. I think that's one way of reading the situation. Oh, Adrian, you're going to tell me you're going to tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> no, no, it's not terribly far from the truth. I was going to say um, they didn't quite pull out of the business, but certainly they insulated the private underwriters and allowed Lloyd's to thrive. That part of of what you said is is, is definitely true. I don't want to speculate too much. For academic historians, we don't like to say. This caused that, unless we're absolutely certain. Uh, but I think we can reach some conclusions that the, that the Smyrna catastrophe, in a small way at the very least, contributed to the success of Lloyd today. Wow. Okay. I'm not an academic historian. I have no qualms. I'm, I'm very happy with sort of broad brush kind of arguments and conclusions. I love them. I love them. Anyway, um, before I ask my final question, um, anyone wanting to know more about the history of marine insurance, everything from kind of the very earliest days in London, 1438, all the way through to the repeal of the Bubble Act in, in 1824. Get their hands on Adrian's book. Please do that. So London Marine Insurance, 1438 to 1824. It really is a, a very good read if you want to know your insurance history. So please buy it. But um, uh, Adrian, to conclude, what bit of wisdom or advice would you pass on to someone who's thinking about starting a career in insurance today? I guess I would say figure out the jargon. Insurance seems complicated. When I became an insurance journalist for the Financial Times back all those years ago, one of the things that I realized was that insurance isn't nearly as complicated as it seems. 
once you scrape off all the jargon and look at the structures below, they're not that complicated. In fact, they were all invented six or 700 years ago, and they're simple and they work. If you get rid of the jargon, it's really clear. So that would be my piece of advice. Figure out the jargon. Thank you, Adrian. That was wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. RPC Radio. Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also love our other podcasts, Taxing Matters and Money Covered, plus The Fix, which is co-hosted by my colleague Kelly Thompson. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day.